You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so turning, if you would, to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to pick it up in the middle of verse 23 through 25, and I'll just kind of set the stage for us. Paul is in Athens, where he had been preaching, and uh, he was invited to address uh, the philosophers and the uh, religious students, if you will, on Mars Hill. And as he made his way there, he saw idols on every corner. I mean, the, the, the city of Athens was filled with the worship of false gods, and he even found one that was dedicated to the unknown God. And so Paul used that as the foundation of how to preach to them. And so beginning in verse 23 of Acts 17, Paul said, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing... Him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands. And then here's the key part that we're to be looking at this morning, this next attribute of God, as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath and all things. Well, Father, this morning as we tackle this scripture, we turn now to this beautiful characteristic of yourself that is totally unique to you and you alone in all of the universe. Lord, we want to understand this attribute of you better, that we might know you better, that we might love you more. And so, Father, would you teach us this morning, and I know that we're to be talking about some things that can stretch our intellect so, Father, I ask that you give us ears to hear, give us a mind that is sharp to discern, and most important, Lord, may we have a heart that is open to receive the encouragement and the blessings of the truths that we'll be talking about this morning. And so, Father, we commit this time to you, and we do so in Jesus' name, amen. Well, by way of introduction, you recall that uh, when I started this series a, a month ago or so, when I last stood in the pulpit for Pastor Damien, I shared with you that I believed it was God's intent that we look at one topic in this new series, and that topic, that subject is God alone. And to look at the different attributes that the Bible describes concerning his character and his nature. Because again, my, my thesis is, my under, undergirding premise is that to know him is to love him. In other words, how can you not know God and love him, but then to know him better is to love him more. In other words, as we get to know God in a deeper and deeper way that we understand who he is and what he is like and how that impacts our lives, it should affect our worship. In other words, we ought to be able to worship him with greater passion. Our lives ought to be more surrendered to him, knowing and trusting more implicitly in who he is and what he is like. Our entire life should be different, knowing more intimately the depth and the breadth, the height and the width and the, the inf infinitude of who God is. Well, the last time I had a chance to teach, we talked about that foundational attribute of God, known by the fancy word, God's actuality, which simply means that God is actual. <laughs> that is, he is the ultimate reality. 
He is the ultimate existence. Everything else in the spirit realm and the material realm existed his good pleasure. It was created by him and for him. This morning, we move from that now to God's self-existence. That is, he exists in and of himself with no need. And let me illustrate it this way. It was back in 1975 or 1976 that I, as a young man, was out on a training ride with a number of guys from my bicycle team. I raced for a team called Painted Cave Bike Club down in Santa Barbara, California, and it, and it spawned some great athletes. We had a couple national champions and a couple guys that went on to ride in the Olympic Games and set world records and all that. And so it was a, it was a great team to be a part of. And on this particular day, we set out on a training ride, a bunch of us, what were called junior category men. That was men 17, 18 years old. And so our plan was to ride about 75 miles that day, and it began in Santa Barbara, and we headed south, kind of winding our way along the base of the mountains through Carpinteria, and then picked up the road up to Casitas Pass to Ojai, and then once in Ojai, turned west down to Ventura, where we picked up Highway 101, and then skirted along the frontage roads north back to Santa Barbara, again about 75 miles round trip. Now back in the day, you can't tell, I actually had hair. (laughs) Let me just glory in that for a moment. I actually had hair. Uh, And I was very thin, as most cyclists are, 5'11 and about 130 pounds, though my wife would say, nah, probably more like 128. (laughs) I had a 32-inch inseam and a 28-inch waist. It was just tiny. But there was a power-to-weight ratio. In other words, the type of rider I was was a hill climber. Never a great sprinter. In other words, when it came down to just powering out big gears on a flat ground, I was not going to be in the top 10 there. But boy, when the road turned skyward, (laughs) when heaven was above you, man, when the road turned upward, I was in my element. And I could make the rest of that group hurt because I could just power up that mountain like nobody's business. And the rest of those heavier riders, they would suffer trying to keep up with me. So as our group started up Casitas Pass, my friends, they just waved goodbye. They're like, we're not even going to try. It's like, have fun, Paul. <laughs> and up I went, climbing that mountain. In cycling parlance, a great bicycle cl- or a great mountain climber is, called, or is said to dance on the pedals. And if you've ever watched a professional race like the Tour de France or, or the uh, Giro d'Italia or something, when you see them get in the high mountains where the hills begin to like really peak up, we're not talking 6 and 7% grade, we're talking 16, 18, 22% grade, things that are hard to walk up, things that cars have trouble on, and these guys are cycling on it. And what they do is they stand up on the pedals, get off the saddle, and they begin to kind of rock back and forth as they push down those pedals. And it does look like there's kind of a dance between them and the bike. Well, on that day, I was dancing, and up and up I danced until I got to the the city of Ojai, where I waited for a good 20 minutes or so for my earthbound heavy friends to catch up. Well, everything was great. I was feeling pretty studly at that point as we headed down the mountain toward the coast. But then when we hit 101 and started going north, we were met with a fierce headwind. And if you know anything about bicycling bicycling, and bicycling into a headwind, you know that it is no fun. The wind is literally pushing against you. And every stroke of the pedal gets harder and harder and harder as you expend your energy. Well, I had used up most of my energy in that climb, and I had neglected to bring any nutrition. (laughs) 75 miles, you got to bring something to eat. 
Oh, but back in the 70s, sports nutrition was in its infancy. Oh, I'm sure at the professional level, they had nutritionists to make sure you ate right and drank right and did all things you should do to sustain yourself over a 75 to 150 mile bike race. Uh, but not me. I didn't bring any fig bars. I didn't bring a banana. I didn't bring any peanut butter between you know, crackers and a baggie that I could eat. All I brought was a single water bottle. Big mistake. The point is that what happened as I began to push into that headwind is I depleted all of the glycogen in my body. Again, 128 pounds, there's just not a lot of storage. <laughs> there's not like extra anything. And so somewhere along the way, moving from Ventura North, I just bonked. Now, if you're not an athlete, you probably don't know what that means. All of the athletes are going, oh yeah, been there, done that. And sometimes you'll see it in an Olympic event, like in a marathon, where somebody's just moving along, and all of a sudden they just kind of, their head starts to like this, and then they're wandering around, and it's just like there's a disconnect. And what's happened is your blood sugar level drops so low that your brain just stops working <laughs> because it's like in survival mode. And that's what happened. I just bonked. So I stopped pedaling. Well, that's not really good if you're trying to move forward on a bicycle, if you stop pedaling. So my friends looked and they saw that just zombie-like look in my face, and they took turns placing a, a hand in the small of my back, just pushing me along, you know, just to make sure that we could get to that next stop where I could fuel up. And so finally we found a, I don't know, a 7-Eleven or something like that where I got a bottle of orange juice or a, a thing of ice-cold chocolate milk, whatever it was, yeah, just that fuel, boom, 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 and then the blood sugar comes back and I'm alive again. <laughs> and here's the point. I wasn't able to ride that distance sustained by the glycogen stored in my body. I needed sustenance. I needed food, I needed fuel, I needed fluid and carbohydrates and all the things that you need for your body to function properly. I needed something outside to get inside so that I'd have the energy to continue cycling. And the same is true for everyone and everything in the universe. That is everyone and everything, including you and me, needs something outside of ourselves that we might continue to exist. You stop eating, and in a very short period of time, you die. You stop drinking water in a very short period of time, you die, you cease to exist. And there's no such thing as a perpetual motion anything in creation. No, everything in creation needs sustenance. It needs something from outside of itself to continue to exist except for God, who alone is self-existent. As we read in our opening text there in the book of Acts, as Paul began to share the gospel of these Greek philosophers, he began by telling them that God created the universe. He's going all the way back, just like we did in our first study, to God's reality, that he's pure existence, that he is the only ultimate reality, and that he made all things. And then his conclusion is because he made everything, he doesn't need anything from what he has made. Why? because he is self-existent. Now just ponder that for a moment. Think of yourself in a, you know, maybe in a cafe in Paris <laughs> this morning, chocolate croissant there, oh no, butter croissant. Let's go with a fresh butter croissant. I know it's not lunch yet, but you'll be thinking about it soon. And there you have an espresso and you just, mmm, that perfect, you know, aroma and the, the creme on top and then the, uh, and just, and there in Paris you're thinking it'd be great to dwell on and think on the self-existence of God. <laughs> well, let's say you were doing that. 
the reality is that, again, you and I and every living thing needs something outside of ourselves, that croissant, that espresso, to continue to exist. You and I need food, we need water, we need oxygen, we, we, we need light, that we might continue to exist physically. In other words, that physical vitality is all based on, on an intake of nutrition. We need human relationships. We need love to sustain our mental health and, by the way, to continue the human race, right? Without, without that, the human race ceases. If there's no reproduction, we just cease to be, we cease to exist. We need to be born again that we might then become spiritually whole so that we can be reconciled to God, that we might then exist eternally with the God who created us. And even non-living things like planets and stars, rubies, dirt, atoms, even they need God's continual care or they would cease to exist. Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Let me read to you what he writes, and you're going to pick up what Paul's talking about here, where he's communicating this truth, that God is self-existent. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean Jesus was born. It's a title that communicates he outranks, he's before, he's above, he's higher than creation. And here's why, Paul tells us, for by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, that is in the spiritual realm and the material realm, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and then here's what Paul says, and he communicates God's self-existence, and in him, that is Christ, all things hold together. In other words, what Paul is saying is, listen, if God who spoke the worlds into existence wasn't holding it together present tense, it would all collapse upon itself and disappear. Oh, which by the way, the Old Testament prophets and the book of Revelation tell us is gonna happen one day. We read in the Revelation that the white throne will be set up and heaven and earth will flee away and be replaced with a new heaven and earth. Everything that we think is solid now, this planet, this solar system, the universe itself collapses into nothing and ceases to exist and God replaces it with something new. And so it ought to be self-evident that everyone, including you and me, and everything, including Jupiter and Mars and Andromeda and rubies and diamonds and monkeys and ants, Everything that God created in the material and the spiritual realm needs God, something outside of ourselves, to sustain our existence. Either sustenance for those living things or some force to hold the material universe together. But God. <laughs> but God is different because God needs nothing of what he has created. Think about this for a moment. God doesn't breathe, so he doesn't need air. God doesn't eat or drink, so he doesn't need food or water to continue to exist. He is pure spirit, so he doesn't need any material comfort or necessity. He is one God in three persons, so he doesn't need any fellowship, any relationship outside of himself. 
God exists for all of eternity in and of himself, independent of anyone and everything. Or said another way, God does not depend upon another for his existence. Now we do. We depend upon God for our existence. The universe, the solar system, it depends on God for its existence. But God is not dependent on anyone. He is self-existent. Now, the fancy theological word that you're ready to write down so you can use it at Starbucks or Pete's Coffee or maybe Blue Bottle over in Oakland or whatever coffee shop you go to so you can kind of sound, you know, theological and deep. It's like, uh, well, of course, we're talking about the aseity of God. Aseity. <laughs> oh, it sounds like a fancy word. It's just simply from the Latin ase, which means of oneself or is referencing God of himself. In other words, everything that God is comes from within, not from without. And God's self-existence teaches us that God is independent of everything and everyone in creation. He's the creator, not the creation. Therefore, he doesn't need anything in the creation to continue to exist. He doesn't need anything, but listen to this, he gives everything. As we just read in our opening text, as Paul said to those Greek philosophers, since he gives to all life and breath, and then he says all things. In other words, Paul encapsulates the whole thing. He says, listen, we all exist. This universe exists at God's good pleasure. In Romans, Paul says it this way, for of him and through him and to him are all things. In other words, again, living and inanimate objects, it all belongs to him, to whom be glory forever, amen. And here's the first exciting truth that you can take home today, and that is this. So while God doesn't need anything to sustain his existence, he is the sustainer of all things, including you and me. In other words, my next breath, your next heartbeat is sustained by the great sustainer who needs nothing. But we need him desperately. Well, I need to clarify because some people then wrongly conclude, well, that means that then God must be self-caused. In other words, he must have caused himself to come into existence. No, 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 that's not true. Because it's impossible to cause oneself to exist, right? Logically, one would have to already exist to make anything, right? If you don't exist, you can't make stuff. Most especially if you don't exist, you can't make yourself, right? Does it make sense? Nothing cannot make something, despite the claims of modern science. <laughs> Nothing cannot make something. So when we say that God is self-existent, it includes the idea that he's always existed, for he is eternal and therefore uncaused. He did, he's not an effect by some cause, he's just always been. If you want a text for that, Psalm 103, or excuse me, Psalm 100, verse 3, is a beautiful picture of that. And here's the point. When we say that God is uncaused, it means that he has no origin story. Let me give you a scripture to hang, hang that truth on. Psalm 90, verse 2. Moses declares, before the mountains were brought forth, in other words, before creation, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, now listen to what he communicates, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And the Hebrew text, that word everlasting, when you read it, especially in that context, everlasting to everlasting, in the Hebrew, it literally means to go beyond the vanishing point in the past, 
and in the future. In other words, the Hebrew prophets, as they sat with their espresso and thought about God, they would imagine as far back as they could go to when God spoke the worlds into existence. And then maybe in their imagination, they go further back to when, when God created angels and maybe the fall of Lucifer and all that. And then they go back before that to when there was nothing but God. When it gets so far back, you can't think anymore and your brain hurts. It's still further back than that, beyond the vanishing point. In other words, God has always existed. He didn't begin. He wasn't caused. He's just always existed. And so it will be into the future. Now contrast that with everyone else in creation, everything else in creation, which had a beginning. Everything and everyone has an origin story. By way of example, I think of comic books. I don't know if any of you were into comic books when you were kids, but I remember, you know, I had a couple uh, comics that I enjoyed. Swamp Thing, for example. <laughs> but then there was, of course, the classic Superman. Well, when Jerry Siegel first sat down with pen and ink to write the story of Superman, he had to come up with an origin story to explain how Clark Kent became Superman. So that his audience would kind of put it all together and recognize, okay, this isn't just a guy that was born on planet Earth and has superpowers. No, he came from a different planet and that different planet, blah, blah, blah. In other words, there was an origin story. Superman had a beginning. And so too everything else in creation, both in the material and spirit realm. In other words, including angels. And because all were created to exist by that uncaused God who has always existed. And since, so God, since God has no origin story, he has no beginning, we conclude he was uncaused. We were thinking, okay, Pastor Paul, well, that's great, but I really didn't come for theology this morning. How does it apply to me? Well, the first point that we want to take away this morning concerning God's existence, that self-existence, that his aseity, is that since he caused everyone and everything to exist, he doesn't need anything from his creation, including me and you. There's nothing we have that he needs. There's no lack in his person that, that's fulfilled by you and me. The take home point is this, he doesn't need us, but all of us desperately need him. Well, that kind of brings up an interesting point. And some of you may already be in your minds thinking through this, 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 this idea that God doesn't need anything. And saying to yourself, wait a minute, if God doesn't need anyone or anything, then why did he create stuff? <laughs> why did he make angels? Why did he speak the universe to existence? Why did he create man? And more importantly, for each of us this morning, why did he create me? And we've all wrestled with that, haven't we? We're just like, why, uh, maybe the world would be better off without me. No, 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 no. You were created with a purpose. You have a unique purpose, right? And we're always thinking, like, why, God, would you create me? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that God did not create people because he was lonely. <laughs> like, in eternity, like, well, I need a box of kittens. Maybe I'll create people. I'll just have a bunch of people to play with or something like that. Now, I say kittens because there was an occasion where... <laughs> I went to the vet to pick up some medicine for our dog or cat, I don't remember which, and someone had abandoned at the vet seven purebred seal point Siamese, or Himalayans. These tiny little fluff balls, they're little white fluff balls and they had red tips. They were, they were the red tipped ones with a little red tipped tail. And I thought, oh, they are adorable. 
big blue eyes and they're reaching their little paws out through the cage trying to get at me and I'm thinking, oh, oh, oh man. And I'm thinking, how much, how much is it? Well, $50 for a shopper. I'm thinking seven times 50, that's 350 bucks. I'm bringing all seven of these cats home. Fortunately, I called my wife first. No, you are not. We already have two cats and a dog. We are fine, thanks. We don't need like a, an entire living room filled with cat boxes or whatever. So why did he create us? Well, we might look to the historic church creed and traditions and confessions where one reads this way. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's true. And that's based in part on the old King James reading of Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, which said, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and then listen, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Huh, interesting, for his pleasure. But again, we mustn't think that God is so insecure that he had to create a fan club, right? Oh, I've got to have people praise me because I'm just kind of low in my self-esteem today, right? No, God didn't need our praise, our worship, and our glory. So that kind of brings us back to our question, why then did he create mankind, and more specifically, you and me? And the short answer, and I, I know you're not going to be happy with it, <laughs> is that we don't know, really. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit of a mystery that Bible students and theologians have wrestled with for centuries without ever producing a really satisfactory answer that we can go, that's it. Uh, we get a little glimpse of it. Again, Revelation 4.11, for his pleasure. But then you're like, okay, but God doesn't need any more pleasure. He's satisfied and content within himself. So again, we're back to, oh, I don't get it. And the reality is we probably won't understand fully until we are in heaven and have a glorified body and that sanctified mind that will understand God to a greater degree. Perhaps the best answer then that we can offer is the following. While God doesn't need us, Listen, he wants us. And that's an awesome thought that I wanted to develop in this next part of the study. So while I can't send you home with a tidy answer as to the question of why God, who doesn't need anything or anyone, created us, or for that matter, created anything, we can be excited about the many blessings and the benefits that you and I experience as a result of his self-existence. At this point, you may be thinking again. <laughs> All right, pastor, very interesting, academic, but how do I appreciate that, apply that, or enjoy that in my daily experience as a believer? Well, it's a great question, and there are, again, in Scripture, dozens of blessings and benefits as to, you know, they're related to God's self-existence, but I'm going to give you three, and I want you to appreciate and applaud the fact that they all start with an S, I work for weeks on this. We have our salvation, our service, and our stuff. Are you, your uh, people are leaving. All right. Let's look at our salvation. God's aseity shines brightest when set against all other relationships in our life. That is, in every other relationship in life, whether it's with an, a spouse or an employer or a coach, each person has some need met by the other person or some need fulfilled. There's some transaction that takes place in the relationship which both people get something out of the relationship. The fancy word that we like to use is symbiotic. In other words, we kind of are coexistent. We get something from one another. 
For example, as an employee, you work for an employer. You provide some service, a labor, or maybe the intellect or the skill that you bring, or maybe you're able to build or produce or whatever. You do work, and your employer for that work gives you compensation, money. You both benefit, right? You provide some kind of service. He provides you or she provides you with compensation. But God's aseity, his self-existence, tells us that God doesn't need anything from us. Nor do, or excuse me, nor does he have any lacks that we could fulfill. So our relationship with God is not based on value for value exchange. There's no mutual benefit with God. Rather, it's a relationship that in which we get everything and God gains nothing because he has no lacks in his person. So when it comes to the transaction of salvation, the way that you or I am saved, in other words, think back to that moment that you recognize that you are a sinner, separated from God, and on a fast track to an eternity in hell. And for the first time in your life, you recognize, I desperately need help. I need a Savior. And when somebody preached the gospel and the word became alive to you and you expressed faith in Christ in that transaction, right away you became born again. But we recognize that salvation is a free gift. We can't buy it, we can't work for it, and there's nothing we possess that we can trade for it. And that's one aspect of God's aseity, his self-existence, because God has no needs, he isn't lacking anything. So when he offers us salvation, it's a free gift, listen, with no strings attached. It's not like, listen, I'll give you salvation if you give me all the money you got in your bank account. I'll give you salvation if you promise to do this and that or whatever. No, no, <laughs> it's a free gift that we can only receive. Why? Because God lacks nothing. And therefore he's able to give us salvation freely, which Paul reveals in Romans chapter six, verse 23, one of that famous verses in the Romans road that we share with unbelievers, where Paul writes, listen, for the wages of sin is death, we earn that, but the gift of God, we don't earn that, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, having understood a little bit about what God's self-existence means, that verse all of a sudden comes to life. Because we recognize, wait a minute, wait, I earn death, right, by my continual sin. It's a value for value transaction. I sin, I get death. I sin more, I get greater death. It's just more and more and more piling on and piling on and piling on punishment in eternity. But contrast to that, the gift of God, eternal life and salvation and forgiveness of sins, being made a child of God, God gives to us without needing anything in return from us. He doesn't ask for anything except our reception of that gift, our surrender to him. It's one of Paul's favorite themes, and it pops up all through his epistles, one of which you're familiar with in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul writes, listen, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? Grace is the means, faith is the way that we obtain it. And then he says, not of yourselves, it is the work of God. No, it's the gift of God. 
Not of works, Paul says, lest anyone should boast. Again, it's not a value for value exchange. It's a free gift that God gives. All we can do is receive it. So far from being a cold, academic, dusty truth, God's aseity reminds us of our salvation, the very foundation of our relationship with God, the forgiveness of our sins, eternal life, being made a child of God, access to all of heaven's riches today is a free gift from him who needs nothing but freely gives everything to us. <laughs> oh, come on now. Emptied the treasure of heaven into our lives by a simple faith in Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, again, that reminds us, and you hear evangelists all the time say this when they give an altar call. Listen, you don't have to get your life together, sinner, in order to get saved. And oftentimes that's what we think, right? I'm sitting here, I'm addicted to, you know, crack cocaine or whatever, and I've left my, my wife, and I'm not supporting my kids, and I just ran my car into a police cruiser last night and escaped the police. I'm here in church this morning thinking, man, I've got to get my life straight before I can, re, you know, have Jesus. No. Because the most immoral person or the most moral person brings nothing to the equation. It's a gift of God. Just receive it and then let God do the work. He begins to change us. And so God's aseity tells us that we can be confident in our salvation. It's a free gift. We're, we didn't earn it. There's nothing we could do to, 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 make, to make ourselves saved. And there's nothing we can do to continue to be saved. In other words, we don't have to like wake up every morning and go, all right, got to be really good today and make sure I go to church and do my devotions and all this to stay saved. No, no, no. It's a free gift. Number two, our service. Since God doesn't need our help to accomplish anything, <laughs> he is well, because he is well able to do all that he desires to be done, it follows then that he doesn't need our service. After all, with just a word, he spoke the universe into existence. Obviously, then he doesn't need your help or my help to complete in his purpose and plans for today. And so God's aseity, his self-existence, sets us free to serve God with a pure motivation rather than out of a guilty conscience or a sense of necessity. The motivation then in our service is simply love for God. God who doesn't need my love, God who doesn't need your love, God who doesn't need our service, but who freely gave us all things, now we can respond by loving him back by serving God. And we express that love in service to others. As Martin Luther so accurately encapsulated, he wrote, God doesn't need our good works. God's a seity, God's self-existence doesn't need it, but our neighbor does. Furthermore, God's aseity, his self-existence, provides us with an example of how we are to serve others. That is, in the example of Jesus Christ, we find God's love expressed in the giving of his perfect son to be the sacrifice for our sins. A free gift without any strings attached, without any demand that we reciprocate that love. The example, then, of Christ, we live out in our lives that we should, right, Love others without expecting anything in return. A free gift of our service without any strings attached, without any expectation that those we serve will reciprocate that love or that service to us. And as we do so, our service provides the world, the lost of this world, with a breathing, living picture of Jesus himself and the gospel of Christ. Francis Assisi wrote, or, or said it this way, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. 
In other words, let your life be the preaching of the gospel of Christ. How? By living a life just as Jesus lived for us. It was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, that's the model, to give without expectation, to give one way, to give love, to give service, to demonstrate the love of Christ in the same way that he has loved us. And so through our service to others, we can demonstrate the beauty of the gospel in a way that captures the attention of lost people to consider the free gift of salvation provided by the God who doesn't need anything, but who gave everything. And by the way, that's only happening in the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, you look at any other religion, any other philosophy of man, and you don't see people going out and loving others without expecting something in return. You don't see any government going out and giving without expecting something in return. There's always a string attached, always an obligation, but not with God. And we're to live in the same way that Jesus did. And as we do, the world will wonder, what is different about that man? What is different about that, that, that woman? And it will draw them to come to know the God who doesn't need anything, but has given us everything. Well, number three, our stuff. <laughs> The scripture makes it abundantly clear that there's nothing inherently lovable or desirable about sinful man, nor that we possess anything that God might want because he lacks it. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, in other words, we have nothing to offer him, Christ died for us. And once again, it reminds us of God's self-existence as a seity, that his love for us is not motivated by a desire to get something we have or to grab a hold of our possessions or because we're inherently lovable. Rather, God's love for us arises out of his own nature. It comes from within him. It's not because of who we are. A God who is able to extend his love then free of the need to receive anything that we have or anything in return. So kind of let me illustrate it this way just to make it all make sense. Um, you may not know this name, you may, but if you don't, I'll explain it in a, moment, in a moment. And the name is Alice Walton. Now, if you don't know her name, you will know her father, Sam Walton, who started Walmart, the largest retailer on the planet. Well, Alice is single, she's 73, and her estate is valued today at $66 billion. Now, I've thought about what you could do with that kind of money. And when the lottery a couple of weeks ago was at 1.5 or 2 billion or whatever it was, I was sorely tempted. I thought, where can I go and nobody would know that I bought a lottery ticket, right? And I prayed to God, God, if I'm supposed to do this, like give me the numbers, right? Never happened. So I always hope that I'll be in a parking lot and the winning ticket will just blow across the parking lot. I'll just pick it up like a good steward, like I'm gonna throw this trash, and you know, I wanna make sure it doesn't blow into the gutter. And so I'm gonna pick this up and, oh, the winning lottery ticket, you know? Oh yeah, I know how I'm gonna spend that money. But in any event, uh, if Alice was interested in marriage, all right, now you single men in your 70s, put your phones away, stop getting on Expedia and trying to figure out how you're getting to Arkansas that you might cross paths with Alice in her $66 billion estate. If Alice was interested in marriage, how in the world would she ever know that a suitor was interested in a relationship with her rather than her vast wealth, <laughs> right? How would you know? 
It's the same with beauty. In other words, when a man is resplendently handsome, <laughs> or a woman is stunning to behold, you know, one of those kind of people that walk in and everyone notices, it's just like, they're just like, oh my goodness, it's like God just, well, there was the model from which the rest of us kind of, were the, you know, the broken ones or whatever. But the point is that if a man is that handsome or a woman that beautiful, there's the potential that anyone who might pursue a relationship with that person isn't actually interested in that individual, uh, but they're just drawn by the lust of their eyes and the lust of their flesh. And isn't it wonderful to be in a relationship with a person who simply loves you for who you are? Not for what you have or not how you look or, or your great intellect or whatever, but just loves you for who you are. And by the way, that was, what, that was the number one factor that led me to marry my wife. I had only dated her for a couple of weeks when I realized, and it was, a, it was a revelation that just stopped me cold, that here was someone that was not interested in any other guy on the planet, but just me. Haven't you ever been in that place where you're dating somebody, you're always hurt, hurt, you know, thinking as you, you're out to dinner or whatever, just like, please, God, don't bring in a really good-looking guy tonight. <laughs> Right? Because you're thinking, I'm, no, I'm just no comparison, right? Or if you're a woman thinking, dear God, don't bring in you know, some supermodel because I'm not that supermodel. And you're always wondering whether that person is going to love you for just who you are or if they're just waiting for the next better person to come along. So whether it's money, position, life, or good looks, it can be difficult sometimes to know for sure whether or not a person loves you simply for who you are rather than for what they can get out of the relationship. Well, here's the point. Because God doesn't need us or what we have, we can be confident and eternally secure that his love for us is pure and unconditional, that he simply loves us because he is love and he can do no other. Now, again, think about that. In every other human relationship, love is characterized by some mutual blessing or benefit that both the lover and the beloved receive. For example, if you love someone, you might love them because they're lovable. And that person might love you in return because of the love that you have lavished upon them. But then at some future time, if that person starts to be in or begins to no longer reciprocate your love, and you continue to pour out and pour out, and they never reciprocate, or they take their love and they give it to another person. The love that you once had for that person could turn to hate for that person. But the reality is that with God, right, his love is unconditional. Oh, human love can be very conditional. For example, I like you if you love me and can do something for me. I love you because you're cute and easy to get along with. I love you because you're loaded with cash. But if a person smells badly, lives on the streets, or is chained to some addiction, is harsh, unlovable, and maybe even selfish, I don't know about you, but for me, I find it difficult to extend love to that person, a person who cannot, will not reciprocate that love back to me. Oh, I might pity them, but to love that person simply because it is the godly thing to do, it's the thing that Jesus did for me, can be challenging. And such is the nature of human love, which is conditional. Ah, but not with God. <laughs> because God is self-existent. 
and does not need to be loved by you or me or anyone. His love for us is unconditional. And therefore, we can be confident in his love for us, that it is unchanging because it's not based on anything that you and I are or anything that you and I have or anything that you and I do. God's aseity teaches us that he who needs nothing gave everything, including his perfect, unchanging, eternal love, without any preconditions, consideration of our station in life or the stuff we possess. His love is perfect, impartial, and unconditional. And all any of us need to do to be a recipient of that amazing love is simply to receive it. And so our response to God's self-existence doesn't need us, doesn't need our love, doesn't need the stuff that we possess. Our response is simply this, to begin to live like Christ by loving others as Christ loves us. And just as God loves us unconditionally, regardless of what we have or who we are or our station in life, you and I are now called to love other people unconditionally, regardless of what they have or who they are. And not just the people that might provide some benefit to the love we express to them, but to love those who are undesirable, those who are overlooked, those who are ignored by others, those who have nothing with which to repay us just as God has loved us. Paul encourages the believers at Rome in this sense, writing to the church there, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles, wealthy and slaves, and really just kind of a, a, a mixture of all types of people. Rome was the, the center of the empire, of course, and so you had people from all over the planet that were there trading, uh, doing business, and so the church uh, reflected that, that very kind of uh, mosaic uh, kind of uh, you know, complexion. You had dark and light-skinned people, Jews and Gentiles. You had uh, sophisticated Greeks and barbarians all in the same church. And it's easy for people to begin to look down on others, for the Romans to look down on the Greeks, and the Greeks to look down on the barbarians, and these people, and those people, and all. And so Paul exhorts them in Romans 12, he says, live in harmony with each other. And I like the way J.B. Philip translates it. And he says, don't become snobbish, <laughs> right? He says, take a real interest in ordinary people. In other words, don't look always for that, you know, next business connection and low rub shoulders with this person. You know, they got money and they got means and I want to get close to that person. But you look to and, and you, 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 you give your attention to the ordinary person. So just as our eternal and self-existent God loves us regardless of our station in life and regardless of what we possess, who has met us in the depths of our sin and shame, so too you and I are called to love people in every station of life to make our lives a life like Christ that we might love them into the kingdom of God. Well, again, friends, the whole point of, of this series is, again, my contention that to know him is to love him, and to know him better is to love him more. And having just kind of skimmed the surface that we be might better understand God's self-existence, his aseity, we can love him more because he who needs nothing has given to you and I everything he is and everything he possesses. Beginning with our salvation, his aseity reminds us that God doesn't need us and he's, because he's eternally content within himself. 
And therefore, we can be confident that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, nothing we can be to gain our salvation. Rather, his self-existence assures us that salvation is a free gift with no strings attached. Regarding our service, his aseity reminds us that God doesn't need our service because he is well able to do anything and everything that needs being done. And therefore, we can serve him free with a motivation of pure love rather than out of a guilty conscience or obligation. And our stuff, God's aseity, reminds us that God loves us not from a motivation to get something we have because he already owns everything. He spoke it into existence. It all belongs to him. And so we can rest in the assurance that his love for us is eternal and unchanging because it's not based on us and what we possess, but rather on him and his own character. And then finally, God's seat here reminds us that while God doesn't need us, he wants us. And we're going to spend the rest of eternity pondering that I can't explain it to you. Oh, I read in Revelation for his good pleasure. But again, I go back to, but he doesn't need any more pleasure. Why then did he create us? We'll find out in heaven. But now we can enjoy the fact that he doesn't need us, but he wants us. And I don't know about you, but I love the truth that God wants me and God wants you to be his child for eternity. And if you don't know him this morning, today is the day to give up (laughs) trying to be uh, what you think the world wants you to be and instead surrender to the God who has given everything so that he might have you for all of eternity. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, this morning we tackle really a, a fascinating and deep truth concerning your nature and character something that distinguishes you from everything else and everyone else in creation. You alone, God, need nothing. And as we've just stated, yet you want us. And Lord, that, that's overwhelming. And it brings us to a place where we want to worship you again, not just with our songs, but with our very lives. And Lord, we pray this week that we would think about these things, how your aseity, that self-existence, impacts our salvation, our service, and the stuff that we have. And that pondering these truths, Lord, it would draw us into a deeper relationship with you and a greater appreciation for your perfect love for us, not based on who we are or what we possess, but love that originates inside of yourself, love that defines your very nature. And Lord, may we rejoice in that, rest in that, find our assurance in that, our hope in that, and then with that joy go out into a lost and dying world that so desperately wants to be loved and wanted. And Lord, may we be your messengers that communicates to people that there is a God who wants them. And so Lord, use us this week for your glory and for your pleasure. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.